Leaving comfort is rough, but God was so enamored with us that he left the comfort of heaven. That's pretty local. We didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. So God himself took on a fragile body. God of the universe got the flu and the common cold. He sweated and he bled. He took on haters. He was jumped by soldiers. People spat on him and ultimately murdered him. And in that weak, breakable body, Jesus sat with the contagious and the hurting. He listened, he healed them, he encouraged them, he taught them. And that's where he found us, in the sketchy places you wouldn't take through familia. And rather than call us hopeless, Jesus pulled us out the gutter, placed hands on the addicted, shady, and diseased people. He looked us in the eyes and called us beloved children. This is the incarnation, God incarnate. God in the meat, God on the block, God on the street. And these are the stories of the people he met. like you guys I hope you make it and I didn't that's JP right there so that was cool huh you guys so we got some cool people we got some talent in our church and uh, uh, yeah I was excited to to make this video and JP did a great job and if you guys don't like it too bad you're gonna hear it for like 16 more times so yeah thank you and I got it down to 1 minute 20 seconds so you know, it was first one was like 220, and then like 145, 130. Now we're down to 120. Just keep keep getting it down there. Um, but friends, I am Dale. I'm the lead pastor for City Life Church San Diego. I'm super pumped to be here with you today, and uh, I believe that God has you here for a reason. Um, so I'm excited to start our new series called the Incarnation. And uh, you know, as JP said, our incarnation is God in the meat, God incarnate, right? My accent is not as good as JP's, but God in carne. There we go. Um, so what's going to happen during the series is we're going to see the people who met Jesus face to face. We're going to see people who were eye to eye with Jesus. Sometimes that meant they were blind. Sometimes that meant that they were notorious religious zealots. Um, sometimes that meant that they were very sick. And what we see in these people is we're going to see ourselves in these people and we're going to see the way we should speak to others modeled by the way Jesus spoke to them. And so um, that being said, uh, we're going to be in Luke 5, 1 through 11 today. That's Luke 5, 1 through 11. Now, as you probably know, we have Bibles available in that back corner. And uh, we'd be happy to get one for you or you can go grab one. You can uh, check uh, the Bible app on your phone and see what's going on in the NFL if I get boring. But I'm going to try and keep you engaged today. So we'll see how it goes. So Luke 5, 1 through 11. Will you join me? As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Genesaret. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, also known as Peter, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. 
When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, and he said, Go away from me, because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. Would you pray with me? God, we just thank you that you are present. God, we thank you that uh, we can be reminded today how much you love this community how much you love us, the way you hold us together, the way you hold our world together by the word of your mouth is so comforting. Because honestly, sometimes it looks like things are falling apart around us and we tend to fear. And so we try to hold it together ourselves and it's exhausting. And so Lord, today we ask that you would help us to trust you with our sins, the sins of our people. Help us to trust you with the pain and the sorrow that surround us. God, I want to go fix it, and I I just can't do it. So many in this room want to go fix something, and we just can't do it. Would you have mercy on us, God? Would you please give us refreshment from your word this morning? Might your Holy Spirit awaken something in our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're, we're getting a little background on what we're talking about today. So we're in the incarnation, right? So Jesus is at Lake Genesaret, right? So where did he come from? That's kind of important, right? We know where he came from beforehand. Um, Jesus had already been tempted in the desert. If you know the story, Jesus fasts for 40 days and nights, and he goes to the desert, and the devil goes to him, and he says, hey, I want you to do this in your own power. He says, hey, I could actually provide you an entire kingdom of this world, and Jesus refuses, and that is the temptation of Jesus. And then... Um, what we read in this book of Luke, very interestingly, is before he goes to the lake, Jesus heals some people. Um, it's kind of interesting, because whenever we think of Jesus healing people, we think of him with his like entourage, right? But he doesn't have one this time. And uh, very importantly, Jesus goes and heals one particular woman. Jesus heals the mother-in-law of Peter. So Peter, when Jesus shows up, already has history with him. He already knows something about Jesus. It's not like he just comes and it's cold turkey. Jesus knows something's going on. And if these guys are fishing with Jesus, these sons of Zebedee, then they're going to know who Jesus is too. Um, And I just want to say, friends, that noise that you hear is a beautiful noise. And if if a church should sound like that, Churches should be kids that love being here, that are happy, that are shouting sometimes, and um, we want them here, and we love that sound. So if you ever get distracted by kids, pray for those kids. Pray that they might come to know Jesus. Pray that they might love being here with the church. So from this short interaction, um, when uh, Jesus takes a seat on the boat, as a true rabbi should, he sits and he teaches the people, um, we get three points from Luke 5 that I'm going to give you today. And um, the first point that we have is this, that Jesus works where you are. Jesus works where you are. And uh, that'll eventually go up. Um, So here's the thing. If they were farmers, Jesus would have clearly gone and done something amongst the farmers. Um, If they were insurance agents, Jesus would have surely done something amongst the insurance agents. 
Jesus would have met them exactly where they were at. So let's look at verse 4 again. When he had finished speaking, he had said to Simon, put out into deep water, let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied. Now something I want to tell you about um, this word master is that it could mean in other places, uh, Lord. It could mean teacher. It could mean sir. But based on the context of what we read, what Peter calls Jesus throughout the scriptures, we know that this most likely means Lord. So that means that at this point, when Peter meets Jesus, he already has a respect for this rabbi, for this teacher, this religious teacher, and he shows it to him here by calling him Lord. He says, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, and he said, go away from me, because I'm a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. Here's the thing. We can read into this all kinds of ways, okay? And if we are really just like, if I'm just a bad sinner pastor, which I am, but like not in this case, um, I can tell you how to use God from this verse. The fact is, is we can use this and say, Jesus wants you to, to succeed. And Jesus wants you to catch all the fish. Jesus wants you to be rich. Jesus wants you to be successful. But here's the thing. Did Peter use this to become a better fisherman? Is that what happened? Because I would contend that it's not what it was about. Jesus showed Peter something right where he was at. Jesus uh, committed a miracle right where Jesus was at because, uh, right where Peter was at, because that's what Peter needed. Now, Jesus calls Peter, and his response is instant, but we know in chapter 4, he's already healed Peter's mother-in-law. Clearly, Peter is starting to understand who Jesus is. Even before the miracle with the fish, Peter calls him master, right? Pastor James Edwards has an interesting take. He says, Jesus begins Peter's journey of discipleship not by calling him away from his profession, but by challenging him to a bolder practice of it. So you've done everything without me. Why don't you try it with me? Now, you may see Jesus working all around you, and you wonder if perhaps there is more to him than you once gave him credit, friends. He's worked miracles around you, and perhaps he started to pique your interest. Jesus took Peter exactly where he was at, and I really don't know if without something that Jesus intervened, we would not have seen the Peter that we know today. Even Peter didn't think he deserved to be in God's presence, right? Peter said, go away from me. I don't want to be with you. Perhaps at times you feel like Peter. Perhaps you feel undeserving of God's grace. If so, you are in great company. You are in the company of people just like you. You probably should feel that way because none of us deserve this free gift that was given to us in Jesus. So if you find yourself struggling and feeling like, man, I just, you know, I I spent time with a a guy on the street who uh, was running with one gang and he was running uh, with Jesus for a while and he just said, you know what? I can't do God dirty anymore, and so I just need to go and just go straight to the gang. I'm just going to be done with church. And I think perhaps God wanted to work in his heart. Now, I know that he didn't want to be a hypocrite, but I know all of us don't want to be a hypocrite. And if we have to be perfect people to be in the church, then we are never, ever going to be in church. Someone told me once, uh, don't look for a perfect church. This is actually from a guy named Spurgeon. Uh, Don't look for a perfect church, because if you join it, it will not be perfect anymore. So... Romans 3.23 says this. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you are a Christian who grew up in like the 80s or 90s, this was like one of the verses that like we all had to learn. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. 
But Peter here sees himself in a place where, man, I think I've just sinned a little too much. I think I've just done a little too many bad things to be in the presence of God. Let me ask you guys this question. Has anyone ever heard, you can just raise your hand, has anyone ever heard of a movie trope? Has anyone heard that, that term used before, a trope? Okay, uh, well, let me teach you. Uh, basically, it's like a movie or a cliche, uh, a TV or a movie cliche. It's something that we see in movies where you watch the movie and you're like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what's going to happen, right? Like you watch like a romantic comedy and they're like, oh, who is this guy? I hate him. And then, you know, he's like, oh, I can't stand this girl. And you're like, they're going to be kissing in like five minutes, right? Like, you know that, right? That's a trope, right? Or that time when like, okay, well, here's, here's something else. There's a, oh, here's a good one. The nerdy girl, right? You watch the movie with the nerdy girl. This is a movie trope. Uh, the nerdy girl who wears the glasses that like puts her hair up and then all of a sudden she like, for some reason when she takes off her glasses, she has makeup on now and like her hair has been professionally done and we're like, whoa, she wasn't a nerd after all. She was beautiful. That's a movie trope. Also the same thing with, uh, you know, guys, we see the same thing. Like they have their glasses on, they take off their glasses, suddenly they've like worked out for like two hours, right? That's what happens. Um, that is a trope. So there is a trope called save the villain. It's been attributed to, to, to be called save the villain. It happens all the time, and this is what happens. A hero has the opportunity to let the villain or someone the villain loves die. Happens all the time, right? Like, the villain has finally been stopped, and what does the hero do? What does the hero do? I need a little holler back here. What does the hero do? They save them, right? Or they let them live. This is called Save the Villain. So think about movies like, um, so we got this movie, The Mummy. Um, if you've seen The Mummy, there's this guy, Benny, and Benny is always greedy, and he's always trying to kill everybody else so that he can get all the money to himself. And they're always trying to save him, even though he's a bad dude. Uh, maybe the movie The Incredibles, where Mr. Incredible decides to hurt the Lady Mirage, even when he's lost everything, and he, as a good guy, cannot let it happen. And even still, that ends up hurting Mr. Incredible. All right, see? I got a bevy of movies, right? How about the movie Hook? Has anybody seen the movie Hook? Peter Pan decides not to kill Captain Hook, and it over and over again, he comes back to kill Peter Pan, right? And you're like, this is the movie trope, save the villain. In many of these movies, we see the bad guy, we as the audience see the bad guy as unworthy of saving, don't we? We're like, don't do it, don't do it, he's just going to attack you again, he's not worthy to be saved. But we can also see how the good guy is ridiculous. Like, we judge the good guy for saving him too, don't we? Of course, we watch these movies, though, and we always see ourselves in what position? We are the good guy, right? We're the good guy. We never see ourselves in the, we never see ourselves as Hook, right? We're Peter Pan, or at least the Lost Boys, um, or, or Tink Tinkerbell also for ladies. I don't know. Yeah, no, you could be Lost Boys, too. Um, but, like, the thing is, is when we watch these movies, um, we never see ourselves as Captain Hook, but we are Captain Hook friends, I'm not Peter Pan. I'm Captain Hook. I cannot be the winner in this. I am the loser in this. And that's what Peter realizes, that he says that he's the bad guy. Go away from me, Lord, because I am not worthy of saving. In this book called Faith Mapping, there's these guys, Daniel Montgomery and Mike Cosper, and they point out how we love movies with vengeance and retribution in it, don't we? Think about the born identity. Think about Batman. Think about Kill Bill, Mel Gibson's Payback. How about the movie Taken? We are cheering for the guy to get retribution, right? Vengeance. Get that bad guy. Now, this is what they say in their book. 
Imagine it. The story opens with God's goodness pouring out into creation. He creates a beautiful world, a perfect order and harmony, and in short order, it's assaulted by a band of criminals. They storm in killing, destroying, and leaving behind a burning wasteland. Frankly, it would be a great opening to a revenge story. Something beautiful is wastefully, callously destroyed. Our hero sets out on a journey to get justice, furiously chasing down the criminals. But when he finds them, the story takes an unexpected turn. He doesn't strike them down. He doesn't punish them. Instead, he embraces them. He adopts them, telling them, it's okay. I punished my son for what you did. Friends, when Peter came in contact with the greatness of Christ, he was filled with remorse. I know some people that would say, I can't be around certain people because I feel guilty all the time. Makes me sad if you feel that way about me. But he was reminded of his sin and brokenness around Jesus, and Jesus didn't condemn him. Jesus accepted him. Jesus encouraged him to follow. So if you're needing a miracle where you are right now, ask, because God is not looking at you like he won't listen. God is looking at you with a desire for you to talk to him, with a desire for you to reach out to him, with a desire for you to follow him. Ask God to intervene in what you're dealing with right now. I don't know what's best for you, and I can't tell you what's going to happen, but I do know there is a God who loves you. He worked in Peter's life, and I believe he can work in yours. He can free you from addiction, mental illness, physical pain, and all sorts of things if you would invite him into it. I don't know your situation, but I know whatever you are doing, it will be better if you invite God into it. So if that means you're struggling with addiction, it means you should go to an addiction counselor and you should seek God. If you're struggling with mental illness, it means you should go to therapy or psychiatry and you should seek a good God to be in the middle of that. There's nothing wrong with that. And as a person who is a several-time therapy recipient, I will say to you, there should be no shame in that, friends. But that means that when we're in the back and you still feel like you're struggling through something and you know you're going to leave today without dealing with it, I ask that you come to the back and be prayed for. I ask that those little cards that we give you, that you would write a prayer request out, that you would let us meet with you and help you through it. We saw how Jesus took Peter where he was at. In the same way, he'll take you where you are at, but there is more to it than that. I just rhymed like Jesse Jackson. Jesus doesn't meet us where we are at. He wants, Jesus doesn't just meet us where we are at. He wants to take this life and he wants to do a total renovation, friends. Which is our second point, that Jesus wants your entire life. <clears throat> Jesus wants your entire life. But that doesn't mean you have to become a monk, friends. Even if he wants your entire life, he is wanting to be in the middle of everything. So verse 11, it says, they brought the boats to land, left everything, and followed him. They brought the boats to land and left everything and followed him. So once Jesus called these men, they seemed to have responded, and they responded without blinking. So the other gospels, when they mention this, so we have several accounts, right? And the other gospels, it says the men left their boat and their father. But Luke says something even more profound, which is why I like this particular version of it. Luke says that they clearly left everything. They left everything, right? So um, we're just going to keep, keep flowing, okay? I think that they left because Jesus had proven himself as something special, and he was offering them something they could get nowhere else. He was offering them a God-ordained adventure. This adventure was going to change everything, but it would be his everything. Eleven of the twelve disciples of Jesus, friends, would die 
awful deaths for following him, and yet they were resolute. So let me say this, friends. If we are following Jesus, there are going to be people who are struggling. There are going to be people who are going through all kinds of things. And if our church never has people struggling, then we are not reaching out to the people that we need to be reaching out to. Jesus sat in the gutters with people. Jesus sat with people in their pain, in their suffering, in their leprosy. He sat with people who you would not touch them. He sat with people that they were considered unclean. And so, friends, that is what we do as a church. So sometimes that means we're going to have some things that happen, okay? Um, but, but praise God that he is present and that he loves the people who might distract worship. Um, he cares for them. And I'm also thankful that we have people that uh, know how to be kind with them <laughs> as things go on. So uh, for anyone listening to the podcast, there were some things that happened and we just walked through it. Can I just take one breath real fast? Can I take one breath? Okay. Mm, all right. With my son, we always say when he's stressing out, we say to smell the candle and then blow it out. Smell the cupcake, blow out the candle. So, Jesus wants your entire life. Where are we at? All right. We're talking about your entire life. Even this part. Come on. Even this. <laughs> Jesus wants this. Jesus doesn't want you to be comfortable, does he? <laughs> Let me tell you a way that Jesus... Uh, let me tell you another way. Has anybody heard of something called the Mars One Mission? The Mars One Mission. It's super fascinating. In 2025, uh, this Dutch company decided that they wanted to do, uh, sorry, in 2012, they wanted to do a mission. <laughs> I'm not from the future, y'all. Um, in 2012, they decided they wanted to do a mission to Mars in 2025. Now, what was unique about this mission is no one had ever been to Mars. Um, it's a seven-month journey, and people have painted this journey much akin to being like in a cell by yourself. Like it's terribly lonely. You can't move much. And each pound extra you weigh is going to cost the mission millions of dollars. It's a little overwhelming, right? Well, in 2013, they decided to open up a selection process for anyone who wanted to go to Mars. And so uh, it has been said that they received over 200,000 people who wanted to go to Mars. Um, amongst those 200,000, uh, 100 were selected. Here's what they said, though. They said, we will send humans to Mars in 2023. It's been changed to 2025 now. I think maybe 2030, I don't know. They will live there the rest of their lives. There will be a habitat waiting for them, and we'll start sending four people every two years. Our astronauts will be offered a one-way trip. We have no idea when it will be possible to offer return tickets. Dude, when I read that, I was like, oh, no, no. I mean, I mean there's a side of me that's like, why are you going to go to Mars? I've been to Kansas, and there's lots of room there, okay? You could go there first. <clears throat> In order to, to go, you have to learn rudimentary surgery. You have to learn how to do surgery like on yourself and on the other people who are with you. You're going to have to learn how to be partially like a doctor. And you're going to have to learn how to grow hydroponic plants because they don't have the soil that can withstand uh, growing any sort of food. Now, supposedly 2003, uh, 200,003, 586 people applied. 
Many had spouses. One parent had five kids that they were like, hmm, I'm going to go forever away from them. And I know some of you guys are going to have a rough week this week, and you'll be like, go to Mars. Um, So I went online, though, and I really wanted to understand what would cause someone to feel like they would want to take this huge step? What would cause someone to think, this is it? Now, uh, I read uh, an article by a lady named Sonia Van Meter, who is from Alexandria, Virginia. She's married. She has two stepchildren. She was one of the 200,000 that was selected to be in the final 100, and here are her words, friends. She says, I have no death wish, but it would be wonderful if my death could be part of something greater than just one individual. If my life ends on Mars, there will have been a magnificent story and a world of accomplishment to precede it. So she saw the adventure, and she saw that the common good was more important than her own life. Now, I think she's a little short-sighted to leave her kids, um, but that's what she desired with her husband. Now, Luke 14.25, uh, Jesus says this, Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he, Jesus, turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Can you imagine Peter if he, asked, if he had said, Jesus, I will follow you. Just let me first tie my boat to my ankle and carry it with me. Just let me first go and like spend a couple months trying to sell my boat to the right person. Just let me train up some other fishermen. Let me bury my father. Let me know. Peter and the others left the pursuit of everything to follow Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says this, Since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on him, Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, what we see here is we see Jesus saying, come follow me. Come on this one-way ticket adventure. And what we see in the other scripture, because we always use scripture to interpret scripture, is that if you do that, you have to count the cost and understand that you're leaving a lot behind. You're leaving a lot behind, and it will be a hard thing. There were many times that Jesus was speaking where people said, uh-uh, mm-mm, mm-mm, no. Jesus said all these things, and at one point, he had this great group of followers, and then he started to say what it meant to follow him, and we had a lot of people say, this is too much, and they would leave him, and he told his disciples, are you guys going to leave too? And they said, no, we're here. We're here. C.S. Lewis says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis is not talking about Mars, friends. C.S. Lewis is talking about the kingdom of God. To commit your life to Jesus is otherworldly, but it goes far beyond Mars. It is a great adventure of a lifetime. My life of following Jesus has been the greatest quest I could have ever hoped for. Jesus isn't asking you to follow him because he's a bossy jerk. He's calling you into something better. The entire adventure, though, has to start with something that we call the gospel. And this gospel means that we are in debt This gospel means that we had a need. This gospel means that we had a debt to God, that we had sinned against him, that we had showed him that he was not not good enough for us. 
We had said to his face, you are not enough, and we sought out our own way, and so we found ourselves in sin and in debt to God, and yet, because he's good, and yet because he loved us, he was willing to come to this earth. He left perfection. We talked about it in the video, and he came to this earth, and he died as a sacrifice for us. And then he proved his greatness by overcoming the, the death, overcoming our sin, overcoming the cross, overcoming the crucifixion for us. He overcame it. He overcame it so that you could be on an adventure with him, so that you wouldn't be separated from him. You could be in his presence, so you could have even a better life, but probably not in the same way that certain pastors would say, you're going to have a better life. You would have a life with joy, perhaps not happiness at all times, but joy, where despite circumstance, we find ourselves in him. And then after this life, we will be in his presence, and we will enjoy him forever. That is the gospel, friends. Being in his family means he puts you in places where you would have never gone on your own. Being a part of his kingdom means you surrender to the captain of the ship and you follow it to exotic places and you never thought you'd go there. Sometimes that means God sends you to Saudi Arabia. Perhaps he's going to send you to Utah or maybe something more challenging. Maybe something more challenging, friends. Perhaps he's going to send you to your next door neighbor. You know that one that called the cops on you for leaving up your Christmas lights? You know the one that waters his lawn in his boxers? God may have called you to that neighbor, which may be harder than Saudi Arabia. God may have called you to that lady at work that you just never seem to click with. You know the lady I'm talking about? She microwaves her fish. Who microwaves fish? It makes the whole place smell. Oh, someone just put up their hand. I'm not going to call you out. You can microwave fish in your home. I hope you don't do it in the office, though, because that just stays with the off-topic. Um, God, when God brings us on this adventure and we surrender our entire lives to him, it means he's going to send us to people we would never speak to. You know what is even crazier? When he sends us to those people, he causes us to love them. Oh, that's even weirder, huh? Like not only do you go to someone that you would never talk to, but you love them, you think about them, you pray for them, you care for them. Oh, that's such good news. And so following Jesus means following him to those who suffer and need him. And that's my third point, which is Jesus followers fish. Um, Jesus followers fish. And I don't know if that's like a, I don't know my grammar right, so you guys are going to have to help me. I think it's like Jesus followers fish. I don't know, but Jesus followers, comma, fish. There, we could take away the comma and it says Jesus followers fish. Uh, you know, I'm working on it, friends. So in verse 10 it said, And so were James and John, Zebedee's sons, who were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told Simon. From now on, you will be catching people. Jesus says, follow me, but following Jesus means sharing his love with others. And I want to tell you, guys, when I read the Bible for the first time, I read the Bible for the first time when I was 16. And so that means I approached it with a 16-year-old brain and not with a, the brain of a child. And so I didn't just look at it and say, oh, cool, this is all right. I looked at it with uh, maybe sometimes a skeptical mind. And when I read this, I was like, Jesus, this doesn't sound right. Jesus, this sounds kind of hard. Because really what it sounds like is it's saying, you want me to trap people. You want me to go catch people in like a way that I would kind of say sounds negative. Now the word here for fishing is zogreo, which actually means capture alive. So that doesn't help me either, because you know what that means? That means trapping people. So Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go teach you to trap people. Praise the Lord. Let's move on, right? No. There's a, like, does that rub anybody else the wrong way? Because it rubs me the wrong way. If it were out of anybody else's mouth, mouth besides Jesus, I would say, that's a bad idea. Don't say that. 
But I remember being so offended by this idea, thinking, why would Jesus want to trap people? What's it like to really fish? And is that a good thing? And I think that there are pastors out there who would read this the wrong way, and they would be predators, and they would desire to truly trap you, not for the kingdom, but for evil and for their own selfish gains. They want to trap and ensnare you. But this is not what Jesus desires for you, friends. So we've been talking about fish an awful lot, so let's stay with it, right? There is a river in Wales called the River Teme. Um, I don't know if I'm saying it right, because I don't know how to speak uh, whatever their language is. It's not English, it's something else. Um, What is it called? Welsh. Welsh. So it's Teme or something, this river. But in July, this river, uh, after a major drought, started to dry up. And uh, they realized that because of this drought, this river was not going to exist in a few months. So what did scientists do? Scientists went to the river, and they put electrical currents into the river um, so that every fish would float up to the top, and they could uh, capture them alive, but, you know, not flopping around, and they moved them downstream to a deeper place where they knew that those fish would be safe. This is the kind of fishing that I'm talking about. I think this is the kind of fishing that Jesus is talking about. Like, we don't want to go be fishers of men so that we can trap them and consume them and and use them for our own purposes. We want to go be fishers of men like Jesus would call us because we care about people and we want something better for them. And that is what Jesus wants. We want to fish for men so that they might have life and life abundant in deeper streams. Now, biblical scholar... Uh, from India, Takit Temjen Ao says this, we must go into our world to find men and women who are broken and then respond to their needs. There are some whose bodies have been broken by poverty, sickness, domestic violence, or lack of the basic necessities of life. Others have broken hearts emotionally and spiritually. Jesus is calling us to go. He's asking us to catch them by capturing their hearts for Christ so they may too enjoy the abundant life he gives. And so some of us who feel guilty into inviting our neighbors to church um, can say, well, pastor told me to. He's kind of sort of okay, guys. So I'm going to just invite my neighbors to church because he told me to. Um, But friends, true transformation of our communities needs to be more than that. If you tell a child to share, like if you have a kid and you give them a toy and then another kid comes in the room and they start to grab it, you tell them to share. How do they share? Sometimes they'll give that toy to the other kid by like, here you go, take it, right? That's how a kid shares, when you push them and force them and fight them to do it. That's not how this can be. I don't want to force you to share the gospel where you'll just take the Bible and you'll just hit people with it. I don't want to force you to share the gospel because you'll just force people to come to church and just sit and be mindless robots. Here's what I desire for you. There are many suffering today. And I don't want you to tell people about the love of Jesus because I manipulated you into it. I want you to consider the suffering that is happening apart from Christ right now in our communities. People are suffering. Church, I believe today that the devil has done a brilliant job in separating us. Social media is clearly showing us how divided we can be. I received a message from a friend this week who said, the truth is I feel so lost in this world most of the time, I don't know what is wrong or right anymore. The truth of this world is getting more and more complex. As Christians, it feels harder to navigate, but it's worse for others who are far from Christ. When I struggle, I go to the Word. When I struggle, I go to prayer and I listen to God. When I struggle, there is a church that will surround me and care for me. 
No amount of weed, sex, power, or Netflix and chill can help you with the despair a person can feel apart from Christ. And if you feel like those things help you, you may find they are just kicking the can down the road, friends, and you'll be in the same place soon after. I want you guys to imagine, if you will, a dark world. Off in the distance, you see the light of a great city of God. And in that city, you feel a shaking, a rumbling of the singing and stomping of the host of heaven. They are singing, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Along the way, to get to that city, you are handed a torch, this torch of salvation. We might call it, you know, like a mag light. It's one of those mag lights that uh, you can use for light or you can use to, like, protect yourself too, right? It's a free gift, direct from the maker. You didn't earn it. It was earned for you. It lights your path. It can be used to protect you and those you love, and you cannot lose it. It's your ticket to the celestial city, but it also changes your current life. You can see stumbling blocks now. It helps you to see ahead and helps you to see those around you. It helps to see those who might attack you. It helps to protect you from those who might attack you or your family. When you hear shrieks or shouts in the darkness, you can illuminate them to know what's happening. Sometimes, of course, we still don't focus where we should with the light, and we'll still trip and fall, right? Sometimes we'll feel a little more like Peter when he says, God, I'm so sinful, I don't deserve anything. It's so dark out there, family, though. And the light of Christ desires to shine on everything in your life. Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. We heard uh, Tan read this. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all who are in the house. Friends, if you think that we can do this passively, this shining a light on our world passively, where we can like, like stay in our couches and sit in our homes and we shine that light maybe like while we're watching TV out the window, like it's not going to do it anymore. Because in this darkness, there are many people who desire to consume others around us. There are people who desire to hurt those around us. There are drug dealers who will take advantage of the darkness. There are others who love nothing more to see young children converted into the social religion of secular humanism. In this community, specifically, there is a strong and growing contingent of Islam. Now, um, I'm just going to no, be straight up with it. The nation of Islam and the black Hebrew Israelites would like to teach our men that following Jesus is weakness. And this is all over our community. And I see these men going and trying to recruit. They will not speak to me because of the complexion of my skin. And I see it constantly. These men believe in works-based righteousness, and they are preying on young men in our community. And when I say works-based righteousness, that means you can earn God's love. And I say to you, Jesus earned the love that we receive. Did you know that African-American men are 150% more likely to convert to Islam than any other American? Did you know that 7 out of 10 conversions in U.S. prison are to Islam? Friends, we cannot afford to hope the fish will find their way to us. We cannot. This is a deception. We bear the light of Christ, and we ask you not to hide it in your homes because there are people who are dying apart from Jesus now. Now, if you find yourself of a different faith in Christianity, I hope that I have not offended you, but I speak with truth what I believe is to be true. And so I hope that you will look to the word and see. Let me close with this. About three years after this story, when Jesus and Peter come face to face, something else happens. Jesus is crucified for us, right? Jesus rises again. 
And what else happens? Peter denies him. Peter tells everybody, I don't know this dude. Peter curses his name. Peter says, Jesus says, I don't even know who Jesus is. I'm not even from that area. They say, hey, you sound a lot like Jesus. Like, you have an accent like Jesus. He's like, F that, I don't know Jesus. Like, it says he cursed. I don't know what kind of curse. It might have been like GD. I don't know. But Peter denied Jesus over and over and over again. After Jesus was killed, Peter skulked back to his fishing. Like, in the word, it just says, he says, I'm just going to go fishing. And then the guys followed him. He just went back to what he knew, right? Went back to what he knew. There, while he was fishing, a man appeared across the sea, about 100 feet, where they are not very deep. He said, hey, friends, do you have any fish? You catch any fish? And uh, the men said, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat. So they did. And what happened? Once again, it was to the full. It was to the brim. They had caught many, many fish, and they knew that this was Jesus. And so what did Peter do? Peter stripped down, and Peter jumped right off his boat so he could get to Jesus. And he sat down with Jesus. He sat down with Jesus face to face, and they had a barbecue, a fish barbecue with fish and bread, and they hung out together, and they loved each other. And Jesus forgave Peter. And Peter, who was so full of all the sin and struggle, who had gone back to his sin and rejected Jesus, who had cursed God's name, was loved once again. So some of you, friends, may find that you accepted Jesus at some point. You may think that you were good at some point, but you've struggled for a long time. And I say, there is precedent in Peter. And Jesus welcomed him to the fire where they cooked fish and they ate. Most likely they sang songs and told jokes. Perhaps you are a Christian, but you feel more like Peter the second time. And so friends, if that's you, I ask that you pray with me in this moment. God, I, I feel like I have not followed you well. I feel like I've sinned against you so much that there must be no way that you could, you could come to me or love me, and yet you do. God, would you forgive me? Would you help me to count the cost of what it means to truly follow you? Would you help me to understand what it means to follow you? Would you give me the strength to follow you? God, I ask that you would be a part of my family, my home, my friendships, my work. I ask that you would forgive me. And in this moment of silence, let us confess our sins to God. God, we thank you that... Uh, Peter's sin didn't disqualify him from being loved by you. Peter followed you for three years, and still you welcomed him home into your arms. God, we ask that wherever we are, we might be reminded of your extremely gracious love for us that abounds. God, for those who feel far from you, I pray that you would comfort and love them well.
God, we thank you for this moment, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.